Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Hey, welcome to episode 954 of the Talking Metal Podcast. My name is Mark Striegel. Hope you're doing great and that your week is off to an amazing start. We have two keyboardists on the show, a real rarity here on Talking Metal. I know we had uh, Jordan from Dream Theater on back, I think that was like June or something, right? And now another two keyboardists. And I mean, in the history of this podcast, 954 episodes uh, strong, we've probably had like maybe six or seven keyboardists on or less. I don't even know. I mean, I'd have to go back and and do a count, but it hasn't been a lot. I know that. And we've probably had dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of guitar players, you know, and, and vocalists. And so keyboardists, uh, definitely a rarity here on Talking Metal, but why not have two of them on this episode? We have Adam Wakeman, who is Ozzy Osbourne's keyboardist in the Ozzy Osbourne band. He's been, been with Ozzy a while. He's played with all sorts of other people. I mean, the list is amazing. You can check his website out. It's just a, a laundry list of uh, superstars and talent that he's played with through the years. And of course, he was Black Sabbath's keyboardist. He, with Sabbath, wouldn't be on stage with the four of them, but he was off stage rocking out and doing keyboard and even playing a little guitar when he was touring with Sabbath, backing Tony up. Uh, with Ozzy, of course, he is on the stage with Ozzy, rocking out, and uh, yeah, great stuff. And anyways, he has a new solo record out that I am really enjoying. We're going to have Adam tell you all about that in a minute. And then after that, we're going to hear from a legendary guy. His name is Mark Stein. He plays with the one and only Vanilla Fudge, a band that I believe once shared the bill with Black Sabbath and Bruce Springsteen. I might, might have that wrong, but I believe there was an Asbury Park gig back in the day where Bruce's band opened up for those two. Or maybe maybe I'm confusing that but with something, but I think that's what Carmine, the drummer of Vanilla Fudge, had told me. Carmine, a piece, had told me. But we're talking with Mark Stein today, and he, again, a great keyboardist with just a legendary band that goes all the way back to the 1960s craziness. So we're about to get into our first interview with Adam Wakeman. But before we do that, do you want a Talking Metal t-shirt? I have too many. We usually save these for the people on Patreon, but we're going to do an offer here for the next couple weeks. Uh, 10 bucks. That's super cheap, barely covering my cost. As a matter of fact, I'm probably not covering my cost, but I got to be honest, I got hundreds of these things. I was sold out. I, I, I ordered probably too much. 
and just looking to quickly move some of them. So Talking Metal T-Shirt, one of the world's longest running podcasts since 2005. We now have T-shirts that we're doing this one-time offer. This is the cheapest I've ever sold a T-shirt, 10 bucks. All sizes currently available um, from small to triple X, right? Yeah, so let me know what you need. Big guys, we got your shirts. Little people, we got your shirts. Shirts for everyone, and they're only $10 right now, and I will rush that right out to you. So you can hit me up through PayPal. Just go to my website. The website is markstriegel.net. I'll give you the spelling of my name, M-A-R-K-S-T-R-I-G-L.net. And you'll see a little PayPal button there. You hit that button and just shoot me over 10 bucks. Four people in the States only. I'm sorry. I just, I can't, I can't send them outside of the States for, for $10. They're 20 internationally if, if you want them outside of the United States. But for people in the States, 10 bucks um, right now, 20 if you're outside of the States. Okay. And just hit that PayPal thing, put in your name, address, the shirt size, and we'll get that out to you, okay? You can also support me on Patreon. $5 a month gets you a Talking Metal t-shirt on Patreon. That's anywhere in the world, okay? And the Patreon little tab is also there on markstriegel.net. Thanks for your support, guys. Here's our chat with Adam Wakeman. Hey, it's Mark Striegel of Talking Metal, and we are welcoming back to the podcast after uh, about a year and a half, Adam Wakeman, best known for his work with Ozzy Osbourne, and of course, Black Sabbath. Adam, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Mom. Thank you for having me back. Oh, you bet. We spoke last time, I think it was on Skype. It was March 12th, 2020, and you were in Argentina, and a lot happened right after that. Um, no, and- I'm going to blame you. You started everything. That was the last <laughs> interview I did. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, let's let's talk about that. Uh, you were touring with Jethro Tull at that point, right? Am I correct? That's right. Yeah, Martin Barr uh, was was doing a, a 50th anniversary of Jethro Tull. So Martin was uh, obviously the guitar player uh, right from the beginning with with Jethro Tull, and um, he just called me up and said, "Do you fancy coming and, and doing a few doing a few shows?" And there was uh, Dee Palmer on, on keyboards as well. So it was great. It was a great band. It was really. A really enjoyable trip, but unfortunately cuts somewhat short. Right. And and you mentioned this in the liner notes to your new album, which we're going to talk about, which is great. It's called A Handful of Memories. It's by the time you hear this, listeners, it will be out and I highly recommend it. But, you know, it was it was just uh, the beginning of kind of a new phase of your life uh, for what I'm reading in the liner notes or at least a temporary phase of your life because music shut down. I mean, and that is your livelihood, live music specifically. And you really went some different places, it sounds like, in the whole COVID quarantine time. Can you talk a little bit about where you went, you know, personally and professionally for that matter? Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I've spoken to a lot of musicians who, you know, have everyone's been in a kind of same boat, but people talk about it with different degrees of honesty. I've kind of found, you know, some people, some musicians have, have been okay where, 
you know, they do a lot of teaching maybe, and then, then their, their live music doesn't take so much of their um, time and generate that much income. For me personally, you know, live music has been a good 80% of my of my income for, for quite a number of years. Now, I do, obviously I have royalties and, and stuff like that, but that have been coming in, but with record sales, the way they are and the way that streaming has affected writers, I'm not going to get on a high horse about it. It's just the way it is. Over the years, over the last 10 years, I would say my balance has gone from 50% royalty income to 50% and 50% live income to more like 80% live and 20% uh, royalty income. So as I say, I'm not, I'm not moaning about it. It's just that that's the reality. And you then spend more time away touring. So when something like that suddenly disappears, you've got a very big hole uh, to fill. And um, and I'll, I'll be honest, I didn't, I didn't really feel very enthusiastic about doing, um, you know, writing seven albums and putting seven albums right. and using that time. Plus, you know, I've got three kids and a, and a mortgage pay. I need need to pay bills. So, um, you know, lots of people are uh, they, they they think that musicians like myself, you know, are you know, minted and loaded and, you know, live in big houses and have fast cars on respite. So, you know, we're working musicians. We're right. kind of very fortunate to play with some, some absolutely incredible people. But, you know, ultimately, it's it's not my name on the ticket. It's, you know, Jethro Tull's name on the ticket or it's Ozzy's name on the ticket, you know, and I'm fair, I feel very privileged that I'm in that position. However, when that stops, when the touring does stop, um, you know, there isn't this huge sort of buffer of, of royalties coming in that, that, that can sort of that can keep you alive for 18 months two year, years while while the world sorts itself out um so basically i uh, i kind of took a slight sidestep into something that i love doing i've renovated a couple of houses um over the years that i've lived in and a friend of mine said could you um come and give us out i just need some carpentry done so i did a bit of that and then i um, somebody needed some other work doing, and I, I sort of did some of that. And then I uh, ended up being in um, uh, a place over near Ipswich, renovating a house over there, which I, I talk about in the liner notes of the album. And it, um, I, I just sort of lost interest in not being able to play live, and it just kind of, it's like somebody taking away all your instruments and saying, okay, now what? Um, so as I say, I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, unhappy about the last couple of years of, of having to sort of stop music and such. It's been, a, if anything, it's been an eye-opening experience and something that I'm lucky in that I really enjoy construction, building, carpentry. All that stuff is a hobby of mine. So when I'm not touring, I'm generally doing that on my house anyway. Or, right. You know, um, it was just it just became a little bit of a necessity to um, to keep things going. So uh, yeah, so that's kind of what happened to it. And when you stepped away from the keyboard, you stepped away from the piano, you do eventually come back to it. But I mean, you went a while without playing. But when you do come back to it, from what I'm gathering, you write some just incredibly emotional music that is a part of this new record, A Handful of Memories. I want to talk about some of the specific songs. But do you think stepping away from music for so long um, when you came back, there was 
uh, a sense of creativity that just burst out of you or, or did it take a while to kind of pull it out of you? What was it like coming back to the piano for the first time in a while? I think the biggest, the biggest problem I had was if you don't play every day, you get rusty. You know, you're, you're, you're using different muscles in your hands when you're, you know, using a chisel than you are playing the piano. And right. by not playing the piano, and I, I literally, I did, every time I, I thought about sitting down, I just thought, what's the point? And, and I, I said to myself, that's a, you know, that's a situation I never wanted to be in. I always said when I was younger, if I, don't, if I stop enjoying it, if I stop enjoying playing and, and, and performing and writing music, then I'll just do something else. You know, I never wanted to be that guy, that bitter bloke at the end of the bar who's, you know, yeah. just always moaning. It, I, it's not worth it. Life's way too short to be miserable in what you do. So I thought, um, you know, by doing, doing that, every time I sat down, um, I just didn't really want to do it. So I just stopped. And it, that month became six months, which became a year. Um, but then when I did finally sit down, it was a kind of a, it was a, a bit of a uh, sort of an epiphany of actually, you know, this is this feels fresh. It, it feels new. It feels like I haven't been in this situation before. Which, you know, as a, when I was a young man, I, I just thought music has to be everything. You have to do music full time, twenty four hours a day. Otherwise, you're a failure. Now, at the age of forty seven, I've realised actually there's an awful lot more going on that you can do, and make your time as a musician more creative and more kind of i don't know emotionally accessible i i, I just feel I, I feel it's been such an amazing period of not playing music that has made me much more rejuvenated in in actually writing and and right. hopefully playing some music soon absolutely and back to the record a handful of memories the first song i heard just hauntingly beautiful the winter palace uh, let's talk a little bit about that song, how it came about. Well, the, the whole album, the concept of the album is basically places. It's a, it's a modern classical piano album that has um, each track has a story of somewhere I've been either on a tour or with my family or on my own or somewhere that, that holds a sort of special memory for me. Um, and each piece is kind of my uh, sort of musical interpretation of, of my experience of being there. There's, you know, there's places all over the, all over the world. The Winter Palace is about um, St. Petersburg in, um, in Russia, where I first went, I did my first ever professional concert, which was with my dad when I was, I think, 18 years old um, in St. Petersburg. And I've been back quite a few times over the years, but many times with Ozzy and, and Black Sabbath. And every time I go, it changes in such a, a, a rapid way that, that it's, almost unrecognizable from 1995 or whatever when I, you know, when I was first there. Um, and, and this piece is just kind of the, the summary of 25, you know, nearly 30 years of going back and forward to, um, to St. Petersburg and the changes and just the kind of, um, I don't know, that uh, hopefully that song will portray the, the atmosphere, what I, what I experience every time I go there. And I, I go running a lot. And, and when I was, Every time I've been there, I've kind of done the same kind of route. And if I'm staying in a different part of town, I'll run to where I've run before. And that way I kind of, there's a familiarity of a country or a city and a country that you kind of, you, you just see in a slightly different way rather than going to the same restaurant or going, right. you know, whatever. And it's, 
the run always took me past the Winter Palace, so that was that, that was basically the you know the obvious obvious name for it. Right on, and you know the, a song like Sunrise over LA, I listen to it and I can hear that. I mean, I'm like, wow, yeah, I could, I get it. It it could be a sunrise over LA. This music does the memory of a sunrise over LA inspire the music or vice versa? Uh, do you come up with the, uh, an idea of what you want to write about? And then it comes out of you. Like, how does the creative process work in putting these places with the music? Is it something you could verbally explain? Maybe not. I don't know. Well, it, it, they, it varies from track to track, really. Some, you know, none of them I sat down at the piano and said, right, this is going to be about a sunrise in LA, or this is about Iceland or, or whatever. They, they were all, um, I would sit down at a piano and come up with a little part, and then that would lead me to think, oh, this, this is what I'm looking for for LA. I knew I wanted to write some, uh, a track about LA. I knew I wanted to write a song about New York. I knew I wanted to write a song about Iceland. Um, wanted to write um, one about Morocco. So there were kind of there were specific thoughts going on in my head. And the funny thing was that the um, the job I was doing over in uh, this house renovation was about a three hour drive from me. And I would go over on a Monday, right. and I would stay in essentially a building site in, on an airbed in this house renovating it, um, and then uh, drive back at the end of the week or after ten days or something. So I would have ten days in this place. A lot of the time on my own, I'd have the time in the car driving, and I would be thinking about all these tracks and all these places. You know, even before I'd started writing, I just think I just thought like, this would be a great idea for an album. And so that that kind of that time you don't normally get. Um, you know, when you're doing music all the time, you're you're flying around all over the place, and you've got very little time to sit and actually think about the process and, and how you're going to go about doing it. So that for me was, I was really grateful of. It was a brilliant way of just kind of getting everything in, in place before I even sat down and played a note. But, but you know, I, you know, your, your, your question was that um, it kind of starts with a little idea and then that inspires which place I'm thinking about and then it kind of develops from there. Yeah. And you mentioned the song Iceland, which is one of my favorites. It, it, it's, it's almost so simple, but yet it's so moving. You have the high note kind of going and then there's lower stuff happening. Yeah. Uh, it just truly creates a, a vibe. Can you talk maybe a little bit about, about that song and about Iceland and your experiences with that yeah, well, uh, part of the world? Yeah. So, for, I mean, firstly, the, the, the song itself is, is, as you say, it's quite, I wanted to capture the sparseness and the kind of the it, Iceland for anybody that's not been there is um, outside of Reykjavik, you've got an awful lot of empty space and it's kind of just sort of barren, goes on forever. You can be on roads for kind of hours and not see another person. It's just, it's such a magical place. I've been there twice now and uh, I just, I can't wait to go back again. I really can't. It's such a, such a, an inspirational sort of place and the, the the track is kind of there's just one pulsing note pretty much that, that runs through the whole piece and that's the kind of that's what in my mind sums up the my time in Iceland of these drives these incredible drives around this barren country um and uh yeah when I was recording I mean all the other tracks I I charted out I wrote out 
on manuscript paper. So I, I, by the time I got to record them, I was pretty confident of how you know each part would be. There's not really much in the way of um, you know kind of uh, ad libbing through through the album. So those pieces, if I sat down, I'll pull the charts out and I'll be able to make sure that I can play them. You know, if not identical, very very similar to to how I wanted them to sound on the record. Um, whereas that track was very much a few notes on a piece of manuscript and it was right. turn the lights down and let's just record it. So that was, yeah. Yeah, I think I only did one version of that song. Wow. And that was a beautiful song, there. beautiful song. And you mentioned recording these songs. This is just piano. This is clean. There's no other musicians with you. It, it, it sounds like there aren't even any overdubs or, or, you know, uh, you know, jumps in you know uh it, it's just straight you sitting down hitting record and playing right that's exactly it. and i wanted it to be as if you were in the room if you put headphones on i want you to be in the room with me and it's a it's about 300 seater 400 seater auditorium um not far from me here with a beautiful steinway model d grand piano they have a recording studio set up there so it was um ben weston who was the engineer was in the studio which was about I don't know 100, 100 yards away out of the out of the uh, auditorium, and um, and I said to him, "Let's. I just want to use the room mics as the reverb. I don't want. I want the reverb to sound like you were sat in this auditorium. Um, it just seemed pointless to then put something that wasn't real on something that's so real. Um, and yeah, you hear the noise of the pedal, of the damper pedal. You hear, you know, the noise of me breathing. I think on a couple of the tracks, you can just sort of make out in the background. Right. But that's kind of when you're when you're doing an album that is so um, exposed, it it seems pointless to try and make it sound less exposed. If that makes yeah. sense. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, that was the kind of that was my idea right from the start, and 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 it, it worked really well, I think, because the room was so nice, and that the mics um, bringing the bring the kind of atmosphere from the room. Um, very weird playing to an empty theatre. That's quite yeah. weird. Yeah, it's a, it's a great listen. You can pick it up. In the States here, it's available on Amazon. I actually just bought the pre-ordered the vinyl on Amazon, which I cannot wait to get. Um, but you can also get it through your site, right? What's your site? Can you let us know? Uh, that is a very good question. Uh, well, the best place is to go to adamwakeman.co.uk. Right on. And there's a link from there, and that will take you uh, take you to be able to buy the vinyl or the um, or the CD or, or the links to the streaming services and all, all that jazz. Well, I got a couple Aussie questions for you, but first, yeah. tell us about the chickens. You bought some chickens, <laughs> yeah, right at the start, right at the start of, uh, of lockdown. Yeah, we bought these chickens. We've had chickens before, um, but we we start off with that enthusiastic kind of, oh, it's great, we've got our own eggs, and then eventually they just shit everywhere, and it just makes such a mess. Right. They trash the garden, and oh wow. Um, uh, so we got we got rid of those ones years and years ago, and then at the start of lockdown, we thought, let's get chickens again, and. And it would give the kids something to focus on in between the homeschooling. And um, yeah, no, they're great. There's, uh, there's two. I'm actually going to gift them to my dad. He's moving house fairly shortly and um, he's got a, a chicken run there. He's always wanted chicken. So I said to him, well, right. I'll tell you what, moving in present, you can have my three chickens. Right on, right on. <laughs> cool. And Jazz Sabbath, uh, the tour is was postponed, right? Now it's happening again. It's scheduled. Jazz Sabbath is happening. Yes, it's uh, the 
we've decided to to announce the last date before any of the other dates um, for a variety of reasons. So the, the last date has to be Birmingham for obvious reasons. Um, so uh, so yeah, that's gone. That's just gone on sale now. So that's 26th of November 2022. So we're we're, we're planning ahead. Um, okay. And then there will be more dates to follow shortly within the uh, you know within the next week or so. There'll be uh, there'll be other dates up there. So that's going to be um, that's going to be exciting. I mean, I'm going to have to really learn to play piano properly. Right on. <laughs> and please wish Milton all the best with that. And I will, when, <laughs> next time I see him, next time I see him, I certainly will. And uh, you were very involved in a, a, I think, kind of underrated Aussie record called Scream that was released back in 2010. Yeah. It is uh, the only Aussie record, I believe, to feature Gus G. Have you heard from Gus at all? Do you keep I, in contact with him? Indeed, yeah. I, um, I, I did a little string arrangement for him. At, at, well, that was probably a couple of years ago. I think he's, he's so prolific with his albums. I think it was his last album, not, not the most recent album that he's just come out, the one okay. before. Uh, and then I spoke to him about, oh, must have been about a month ago or so, because he was he was getting frustrated about not playing live and all the rest of it. So we had a bit of a Zoom chat and uh, a, a chin wag. He's great. He's he's a great guy. He's such a such an easy guy to get on with. And it was you know it's brilliant that period of time because it was so um, it was sort of so new. You know, certainly for, for him as well to come into the Aussie camp. You know, and it's it's such a huge you know a huge machine it's a it's a you know coming from doing the tours the firewing tours and stuff that he was doing you know it was kind of he, I, I think he coped amazingly well really considering coming into yeah. that you know he sh- you know he showed no fear that's for sure right on and you co-wrote i think six songs on that record the scream record were there any leftover songs is there anything still in the vault from those sessions that we haven't heard because i've spoken with numerous people through the years and it does sound like there are numerous aussie tracks in in the vault i mean steve stevens told me he wrote three songs or something with ozzy that we've and recorded them which i've you know have still not been released are there leftover Adam Wakeman and Ozzy Osbourne songs? Not the tracks that I got involved. I came to that album quite late in the day. Kevin Cherko had already um, been working with Ozzy for quite some time. Uh, and I came in right at the very end. So the last six songs that I was involved with were pretty much the last six songs that went onto the, onto the album. Um, so I don't think there were any that I was involved with that were, that were left over. It was, um, I mean, the, an interesting story, the very last track, um, I love you all on on that album uh, was the the last track that um, I wrote with Kevin and Ozzy that was done on the day I was flying home. So I'd been there for three weeks, and and Kevin was talking to Ozzy and myself, just saying, "Oh, there's a you know, it'd be really cool to do this kind of this track at the end of the album, which kind of you know uses what you what you say is always you know ended shows by saying I love right. you all or whatever." Yeah. You know, and uh, and Kevin asked me if I had any sort of ideas, and I was kind of out. But I'd, all the ideas that I'd played, we'd gone with the ones that were any good, and anything that wasn't any good, we kind of went, "No, let's not bother that. I'll follow that." And uh, and I had this little idea on on an acoustic guitar that I that I recorded on a bus in on a tour bus in Boston on one of the early Black Sabbath tours, and I, I just named it on my iTunes the Boston Sprangler, which would remind me 
of that it was the track that I wrote in Boston. Right, right. And it was just that guitar, that opening guitar sequence. Um, and I was going through the iTunes, I was just playing stuff to um to Kevin and Ozzy. And when that came came up, they both went, Yeah, that, play that. So I grabbed an acoustic and then um ended up simplifying the version that I'd recorded because it was a little bit, you know, it sort of changed chord at every bar forever you know it was just it was one of those sort of pieces right right um so yeah so we kind of revamped that and that became um that that tune and, and then i like like lunchtime came and I, I went and got the plane home right wow wow cool cool and anything going on with headspace or or wilson and wakeman and any updates on well those we're trying we're trying to work out what is going on like everybody else because shows are getting cancelled and people are getting covid and and obviously you know there's a kind of there's an uncertainty we've got dates in with um we're doing a festival over here with headspace in the uk in oh when is it april i think or might be okay. may um and we're um we're booked on cruise to the edge for the um leaving florida in march or april i can't that okay. might be may as well actually <laughs> right <laughs> i can't remember i think it's may um but again it's it's a difficult one because nobody really knows if um you know what the transportation side of things are gonna are gonna be getting over to america i know it's opened up now for vaccinated uh travelers so that's a good thing um but um wilson and, and myself we are heading off we've got some shows starting next week and then we we play pretty much up till christmas um over in europe um and just fingers crossed i i i had um covid a couple of weeks ago so i'm kind of i feel a little bit uh, relieved one relieved in one way in that i've i'm you know i'm fully recovered and absolutely fine oh, I, you know wow. it's relatively mild considering um okay. you know what a lot of other people have gone through um but uh, you know, Damien hasn't had it yet, so there's that there's that kind of just that little cloud that follows you, thinking, well, you know, if he gets it and he goes down, then obviously the tour's off. So, um, right. But I think that's the same for everybody. You know, there's it's, it just is what it is, and we've got to try and try and get through uh, get through it as navigate it as e- as as sort of safely as we can, really. Cool. Well, I'm glad it was a mild case, Adam, and glad you're you're feeling better. Did you lose the sense of smell and taste oh, and all that? You know, it was the weirdest thing. I mean, I basically had a, I had like a, a blinding headache for about two weeks, um, and was very tired and lethargic. And um, uh, yeah, I think the taste and smell is such a weird thing because it just takes the fun out of eating. You forget how kind of enjoyable eating is until you start getting your, your taste back and. I was checking myself most days by sniffing a bottle of Ribena. Do you have Ribena in? in I, I don't know what that is. is it, Ribena is like a really strong cordial uh, blackcurrant drink that you add water to. It's like a, okay. you know, like a, you have it as a kid basically, but um, but it's incredibly strong. So I, every morning I'd kind of have a quick sniff of the bottle, see if I could smell anything. It was like nope, still nothing. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it's just started to return. I had a coffee today, and I could taste that. So that's a yeah, that's a good start. I can get back to my caffeine intake. Right on, right on. Cool. And again, the new record, A Handful of Memories by Adam Wakeman. It is out now up on all the streaming services. You can get the physical copy at Adam's website. It's also available uh, on Amazon. And we hope to get you back in this country soon, making some music for us in the live setting, Adam. Oh, let's hope so, Mark. I can't. Uh, I can't wait. My dad's actually just come back. I spoke to him earlier. He's he's been out 
I'm doing shows across the, America. And was it the Grumpy Old Man tour or something like that? Grumpy was it? Old yeah. Man, yeah. even grumpier than the last Grumpy Old Man tour. Yeah, he's uh, he's basically morphed into that character, and he really is the Grumpy Old Man. So he's uh, yeah, he doesn't have to try too hard. <laughs> right on. You know, I never knew your dad played piano on the, the uh, with Cat Stevens. He plays on what's what song is that? A couple songs. Oh, right? morning is broken. Oh, right? I never knew that was Rick Wakeman. I was like, oh my god! I just recently was looking at your dad's set list actually, and he had played that, and I was like, wow, that's such a, a iconic right, do song. You know the funniest, funniest story. I don't know if you if you've got time for this, but the. Um, he tells this brilliant story about when he got the session to do that. Because back in the day, he was doing three, four sessions a day, seven days a week, you know, around London in the 60s. And, and it was just late 60s. He was in and out of studios the whole time. And he went to that session. And um, I, I can't remember the producer, but the producer said, right, OK, so it's the uh, the hymn, Morning Is Broken. And they, uh, my dad played it through, and it was one minute long or something. It was like a verse right. and a kind of chorus. And they said, oh, well, just repeat the first verse. So I repeated the first verse. And then they said... Okay, that's still only one minute forty-eight seconds. It needs to be longer. Um, can you do a bit of twiddly twiddly in between the, the, the two verses? So he did a bit of twiddly twiddly, and they're like two minutes twenty. Can you make it a bit longer? And he was like key change. So <laughs> put a key change in it. <laughs> yeah, um, bit more twiddly twiddly, and that was it. And he, he was like, he started off with you know a very sort of basic um, you know one minute hymn, and and made it into the kind of the arrangement that it was. And he would always tell this joke about how, um, you know, Cat Stevens made millions of pounds out of it and he got six pounds for the session. Right, yeah. And, Sounds uh, like he practically wrote the song. Well, pretty much. <laughs> certainly the arrangement. And uh, anyway, he was telling this story and um, Cat Stevens got in touch with him, or, or Yusuf Islam as he is now, um, got in touch with him and just said, I heard a, an interview on the radio that you did, Rick, and it said that... Um, that you only got a six pound fee for the, for the recording. And if you, you know, if you want more money, well, I can give you some, some of the money from the wow. royalties. Wow. And my dad said, don't, no, don't worry about that. He said, I've had more, I've had more fun out of the story than, uh, than any payment could bring. So wow. it's a more really nice thing to do. It's, yeah. it's the story got back to him, you know? Yeah. Wow. That's great. Great story. Adam, as always, so great speaking with you. And uh, all the best to you and your family. And uh, we'll talk soon, I'm sure. Brilliant. Thanks again, Mark. See you soon. All right. Big thanks to Adam for joining me. Let's now get ready for our interview with Mark Stein of the Vanilla Fudge, a band that we've spoken with with Vince and and Carmine about through the years. And today we're going to talk to Mark primarily about his new solo record, but also, you know, some of his amazing history, not just with the fudge. Actually, we don't even get into too much of the the history he has with the legendary band, the Vanilla Fudge. We mostly uh, talk about his solo record and him playing with Alice Cooper and Tommy Boland and some other stuff. And before we hear from Mark, I do want to mention that his band, the Vanilla Fudge, is about to release remastered versions of their version of Led Zeppelin's uh, Ramble Ramble on. I guess, did I say remastered versions? I think it's one version. A remastered version of their version of Led Zeppelin's Ramble On. Now, Led Zeppelin is a band that opened for the Fudge back in the day. And Carmine has told us that they, you know, used to coach Robert Plant and that John Bonham ended up getting a bigger bass drum because of Carmine. That's Carmine's version of events, which uh, could very well be true. You know, I'm not one to doubt 
Mr. Carmine apiece. And speaking of Carmine apiece, let's uh, talk to his bandmate right now from the band, Vanilla Fudge. And uh, Mark has a solo record out he's going to tell us about. So here we go. Mark Stein on Talking Metal. Hey, it's Mark Striegel, and we have a legendary performer on this episode of Talking Metal. His name is Mark Stein, best known for his work with Vanilla Fudge. And it's it's very cool to talk with you, Mark, because on this particular episode of Talking Metal, we actually have two keyboardists, and we don't get to talk to a lot of keyboardists. I just spoke with Adam Wakeman from Ozzy Osbourne's band, and now we have, we have you, Mark Stein. So welcome oh, to the cool. show. Oh, that's great to be here, man. How's, how's everything going out there in... Uh... Zoom land or Zoom audio land. land. <laughs> yeah, it, it's going it's going good, man. And I'm psyched because we have you on the show, number one. And, and number two, you got a new record out. It's a solo record. And I believe it's your first solo record ever. Is that correct? Well, it's my first solo album on a label. OK, OK. I put out different editions, you know, over the decades, but self-published kind of stuff. But yeah, it's on Deco Entertainment and a uh, great team of guys and uh they're doing a wonderful job and give me great coverage and uh the record will be out uh pretty soon november 26th it's called there's a light and yeah. uh you might say it's the best of uh mark's time because uh there's a song that i wrote called we are one which i wrote about six weeks after the pandemic which is the first single which was released about a month ago um, I don't know if you've seen the video. Absolutely. Or heard the song. I did. Yes. I've, I've okay. seen the video and heard the song. Great um, song, emotionally moving. And in some ways, uh, when I heard that before I heard the rest of the record, I was like, oh, OK, this might be a softer side of Mark. But then when I hit, heard the record, I mean, there's some real rocking tunes on there, too, like uh, racism, some great guitar work on uh on a, we are survivors uh, yeah good rock and stuff there but let's start with the first single i guess off the record we are one talk about how that came about and, and you said the going into the pandemic you wrote that pretty early on can you talk about some of the emotions you were feeling yeah. that inspired that song at that time yeah well you know if you recall when we were maybe five or six weeks into it when it was officially a pandemic you know it was like everybody was uh well i was most people in a state of disbelief. I mean, is this yeah. really happening to mankind? Is this, am I watching a science fiction movie here or what, you know? Right. But it was really true. It was really happening. And uh, to see what was going on to those poor folks over in Italy, so many people, uh, the chaos and the, yeah. the people dying and getting sick and spreading over, you know, the United States and New York and, you know, the whole globe, it was, Pretty hard to bear, you know, and people were just getting so paranoid to, you know, to shake hands with your own neighbor or hug their children or what's the plan to survive. That's I just happened to sit down at uh, the piano and this whole this whole uh, thing came right through me. I started singing and playing the song. I said, wow, this is this is coming, you know, and I just kept going with it. And I felt like this karmic connection because it started off, uh, you know, here we are, battening down the hatches. Right on. Afraid to shake our neighbor's hand, or touch, hug our children, what's the plan to survive? And then the line hit, you know, we've had so many chances 
to spread some love and human kindness all of our lives. But, you know, after world wars and, you know, economic disasters and hurricanes and 9-11 and you name it, you know, we're still, you know, we're still, you're not, you know, we're still divided on so many fronts, you know, and uh, to me, it's all about, uh, about loving one another. And uh, I just, uh, it's very disappointing to see, you know, what's going on in this country on different levels. But anyway, the song came to me and I thought it was kind of like a karmic event, the pandemic, you know? Yeah. But then it goes on to I talk about hope and how we're going to love one another more than ever before once this is behind us. And uh, that's what was behind the song, you know? So I know I had a cool song and uh, I wanted to do it like an old Elton John kind of song, you know, with the grand piano and like a Paul Buckmaster kind of string arrangement, you know? Yeah. In those early days. And I called my buddy Alan Hewitt who's also a great keyboard player from uh, the Moody Blues, you know, and John Lodge, you know? Right on. So he said, well, come over to my place, man. I got a cool, you know, we'll, we'll lay down something. And uh, I went over and uh, laid down a piano track along with a click track. And then suddenly uh, he got like super busy, so he couldn't continue the project. <laughs> so I found, a, I found somebody close uh, to my house, a fellow by the name of Joey Z who has a place called uh, Blue Porch Media. So anyway, long story short, we sent the files over there. I did all the lead and all the back and vocals. I multi-tracked all my own vocals on it and I put the whole string arrangement on it from the sample you know, synthesizer uh, machine that I have, one of the Korgs. Came out great and I was really excited about it. But now I needed uh, drums and bass, guitar. And so I called my buddy Stevie D, Stevie D Akutis over at the Sound Spot in New Jersey, who's Worked on a bunch of my solo tracks and Manolo Fudge tracks and his own tracks. And, you know, he really dug it. When he had time, he, uh, you know, he put a guitar track on it, a little acoustic. And he actually, uh, I said, why don't you put a bass track down to it? So, well, yeah, you know, you got a drum program. Maybe we don't have to hassle with anything. So he put a drum program on it and uh, just came up with this whole production. It's just two people on that track. And we were wow. really excited about it. And it sounds really cool, you know, and people are loving it. And, you know, that, that's, that's how it came about. So Now, is he handling the guitar on the rest of the album, too, or just that song? No, Stevie D's playing guitar on a bunch of tracks. Yeah, because there's some great guitar work. Tracks. Yeah, there's some great guitar yeah, work. Yeah, he played uh, some cool guitar on Racism and All Lives Matter. Yeah, yeah, I mean, all the credits are on the album. It's very, it's very precise. Cool. A Let's... lot of cool players on there, too. And, and a lot of cool songs. Let's talk about the the cover uh, that you do, a Temptations cover. Can you talk a little bit about that? And just wondering how that fits in because, you know, the album, there's definitely some social commentary there, but this is a very strong song when it comes to social commentary. Do you feel like the lyrics apply to where we are now in time? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, when my manager, Bruce Pilato, we started putting tracks together, you know, uh, for an album. He said, what, man, ball of confusion. He said, I love this track. I said, yeah, I produced it for a, for a movie called Rock on the Wall, which was out a number of years ago. The, the theme of the movie was Rock's influence on the fall of the Berlin Wall and, and communism. Oh, okay. You know, but if you listen to the lyrics, even though it was done by the Temps in the early 70s, it's so relative to what's going on today, the world is a ball of confusion. I mean, I'd say the lion's share of the lyrics are relative to today. 
And we just finished this killer video. It'll be out Monday. Uh, what do you see this video, man? It's really, really exciting. Pretty cool. scary. So that'll be out Monday with the release of all the confusion with the uh, video. Now, when you say scary, in, in what way? Well, I mean, it covers a lot of the madness that went on, you know, up in the Northwest with the burning down of the cities, all the confusion, all the, you know, the racial confusion, the, you know, all, all the issues that have been, you know, that have been plaguing all of us for, for the last few years, political issues, economic issues, that's all put together in a really cool uh, format. I mean, uh, so far, the... Uh, the pre-comments on it are like, wow, you know, so. Very cool. Yeah. And let's let's talk about a few of the other songs before we jump into some of your incredible history. The the song Racism, again, some great guitar playing on this, but can you talk a little bit about the message behind this song? I was watching a news show one morning with my wife, Patty, and there was a, <clears throat> excuse me, there was some footage of, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, i got a little frog going here. Oh, that's all right. I can clean it up. <clears throat> Forgive me. I was watching some footage of a, a black kid and a white kid must have been like five years old on their way to school, you know, and they were walking down the street and hugging one another, kissing one another, happy together. And I'm saying, Patty, look, look at the joy in these two kids. I said, why does this have to change when they get older? You know, you know, racism is certainly a form of prevalence on it in our society, you know. And I started getting this idea. I went over to the keyboards and, you know, I came out would ever see a black child walking with a white child on their way to school, smiling at each other like a sister and a brother, laughing at the grown-up fools. Because they're way too young. Their life has just begun to follow the golden rule of hating one another because their skins are different color, colors growing up in a world so cruel, you know, and it goes on, you know, to talk about their mommies and daddies, they could never get along throughout history, the venom so strong. Shame on humanity for letting it get away for 200 years ago to this day, and it goes on, racism. How did it ever start? Racism, pulling our world apart. Racism poisons the human heart. And it goes on, to, I'm not gonna give away all the lyrics, and I wrote this really cool, heavy R&B rock track to it. And the, the middle section, I call the chase scene. It's like an instrumental chase scene. It's almost like an ELP type of, yeah. type of thing going on with multi keyboards and, and, and Stevie D on guitar. And yeah, I mean, I, I think it's an exciting track and uh, that'll be on the album, you know? And it's just all part of the, the twine of the album. You know, it's right. how the world was, how it is now and hope for the future. And, covers uh, love and patriotism and, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of issues that we're facing. Right on. And we are talking with Mark Stein about the new album, There's a Light, out November 26th. And before we move into your history, just a, a couple more questions about the record. We have We Are Survivors, which, again, is just some in-your-face guitar playing on, on that song. When you say we are survivors, what, what's the main message behind, behind that? Well, the original message was, it was written for the folks that were having a tough time behind the Iron Curtain, mm. all right? Okay. So it was really originally written, again, that I wrote, I wrote the, the lyrics, and, you know, that was relevant to that. We are survivors, you know, 
Um, I, f I forgot the, uh, the words to it, but if you listen to it, you know, we have a history of uh, sainthood and uh, yeah, I just, my mind's kind of, yeah. I mean, it was relative to we are survivors because the people survived communism and, got, and just got through it and became free, you know? Right on. That, that's really what it's about. Should have had a lyric sheet in front of me because, uh, yeah. Absolutely. We're talking with Mark Stein. His new record is There's a Light out November 26th. Let's just quickly dip into your incredible history. I mean, we all know Vanilla Fudge, and I do want an update on Vanilla Fudge before we let you go. But talk to me about Tommy Bolin. You did work with him, and I don't know if a lot of people know that. And, of course, Tommy Bolin put out some incredible solo records and was on yeah. kind of uh, – uh, a cult classic, I'd call it Deep Purple record, if you will. But let's uh, hear about your work with Tommy. Well, uh, I had moved out to uh, to the L.A. area around 1973 or four, and I was just writing songs maybe a year and a half, two years after Vanilla Fudge had first uh, split up. And, uh, you know, I uh, was putting together a solo band. And... Uh, Reggie McBride, who was the bass player with Stevie Wonder, joined forces with me, along with some other cool folks. And uh, wow, he uh, he said, "I uh, I got a call from this guy, from Tommy Bowen's manager. Tommy Bowen was the hottest guitar, you know, virtuoso in in 1974, 1975 in L.A. at that time. or in the business. He was really incredible with the teaser album." So was, was so this cool. after Deep Purple or before Deep Purple? I know he was in James Gang, too. I think, you know, the yeah. Joe Walsh's well, this, band after Joe Walsh. Yeah, this was after Deep Purple. He had left Deep Purple because he wanted to he wanted to pursue a solo career and he wanted to put a solo band together. So the timing was while I was putting my solo band together, Reggie got a call to go down and play with Tommy. And, and he called me and said, look, Mark, I'm I'm going to play with Tommy because this is going to be a really great opportunity for me. I said, hey, dude, why don't you uh, why don't you ask Tommy? Tell Tommy I want to come down and play too, you know? So that's how that happened. I went down to SIR in LA and Tommy was a fan of mine in the fudge. So I went down and we we started jamming together and uh, it was magic, man. We, we you know, he asked me to to join forces with him. And then like Michael no Michael Walden, Norda Michael Walden from the Mahavishnu Orchestra on drums, he uh, you know, he got him in the band and he was amazing, a young Narda. And uh, there was also uh, Norma Jean Bell, who was fresh out of uh, Frank Zappa's band on sax and vocals. And she was, she was just killer. Her and Tommy were so great on stage. So that was the band, man. The first configuration of the Tommy Bowling band it was a mixture of soul, you know, uh, progressive rock, fusion, blues. And what a band it was, man. If anybody saw the, that, Tommy Bowling Band, that first band, we played the Roxy in LA, man, in 75. I mean, the place was wall to wall, and it was so much excitement. What a, what a great night that was. And Tommy was, uh, he was like so cool because he wanted everybody to shine, you know? Right. You know, he had Nardo do a song called Delightful that he wrote. He had me do a song called uh, I Fell in Love, which was like Ray and Rachel's inspired blues tune. And it was so cool because I did it on the grand piano when Tommy and Norma and Reggie, they called themselves the Sniffettes, like the Raylettes. He said, we're the Sniffettes, singing all like the, the background parts 
and it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a bar burner, man. People loved it, you know. Cool. But of course, Tommy had his demons that he couldn't overcome, you know. Yeah. No matter who tried to get him straight, it just just didn't work, man. He uh, he uh, just uh, he just couldn't overcome it. So, uh, you know, I had left the band before that fateful tour because communication was getting almost impossible. And I thought it was time to leave. And uh, we, actually, we became really close before that, too. So it was it was kind of tough. But uh, sure enough, uh, on that tour, he lost his life one morning after he opened for Jeff Beck in Miami. I guess it was 76. Yeah. He was gone. He was only 25 years old. I mean, I, I can't, I, you know, can't imagine how amazing he would have been. I mean, all these years later, because he was such a great songwriter, not just a great guitar player and a great performer. The bands he would have been in and the solo albums he would have put out and the songs he would have written. It's just really a, it was really a tragic loss. So uh, absolutely. That's that's the name of that tune, man, you know. Wow. Um, thank you for sharing that, by the way. And, and yeah. Alice Cooper, you did some some work with him. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, I uh, I was asked to uh, join the Welcome to My Nightmare tour in the Southern Hemisphere, which was Australia and New Zealand. It was like way back in 77. And uh, it was a pretty eventful situation because at the time it was the biggest grossing tour of all time in the uh, wow. in this in the southern hemisphere and what was really cool about it like abba was also touring the country and at that time they were probably the biggest selling band in the world you know and uh on one side of the street you'd have the abba fans on the other side you'd have the alice cooper fans with all the posters and you look outside the hotel and it was all this madness going on Wow. <laughs> it was really fun. So we played to sell out arenas and stadiums all over the major cities in Australia. I think we had 50,000 people in, uh, in New Zealand. There's like this one giant picture where we look like little insects against all the people outside in the fields, you know? So that was a, yeah, it was a good experience. Wow. And cool. A good credit. So, yeah. Very cool. And you also had, uh, what, if at least, Two, three years with Dave Mason, you worked with him? Well, yeah, I was with David probably about three and a half to four years. And, uh, wow, okay. That's, uh, that's probably one of the, the most fun times I ever had in this music business. David was so, well, we also became really good friends. Uh, it was interesting because at the time I was being influenced by, you know, like the Blow by Blow and the Wired album by Jeff Beck and Mahavishnu Orchestra. So I, I was getting into the mood. I wanted, I was like playing. I wanted to be like Jan Hammer. I wanted to get away from the Hammond and get into more advanced keyboard playing, synthesizers and all. I was really getting into it. I, I put together a fusion rock tape and I was shopping it. And uh, a great guitar player by the name of Les Dudek had heard my tape, you know, in LA and he was, uh, he was part of a uh, management team that, that managed uh, Ronnie Wood and Dave Mason and himself and the late great Mike Finnegan, who just passed recently too, uh, and Jim Krieger, uh, guitar player, songwriter. But uh, so he loved what I was doing and he played it for his manager, Jason. And uh, Jason got all excited. He invited me over to his house and he said, play me one of your songs, you know? 
So I played him a song called Life is a Ladder that I had written, you know, it's kind of like a pop tune, you know. And he flipped out. He says, man, I'm going to get you a solo deal. He picked up the phone and he calls up the head of A&R in L.A. at Columbia. And just like that, I got a solo deal just from a phone call. Wow. And not only that, he said, Dave Mason is looking for a keyboard player. And I want you to go join forces with him while I'm putting this deal together. So I went over to Dave's villa, this fantastic villa, Mariposo de Oro, fabulous place in the Malibu Hills. And I met David. And uh, we got on great together and we talked for a while. And, uh, you know, he was a Fudge fan in the past. And, uh, actually, he came to see us in England in the late 60s. Uh, we played with traffic on a bill, too, back then. Um, so anyway, he invited me over to the studio to the record plant. And it was like magic, man. I, I started playing some organ and synthesizers. And uh, I ended up playing most of the keyboards on, uh, on an album called Mariposa de Oro, which I think is a really cool record. And uh, that was it. And I started hanging and touring with him and for the next three, four years. It was a great relationship. We had, we just had a blast, man. We played all over the world. We toured a lot. We uh, had a lot of fun. Wow. And what was cool about it was I got into that whole LA scene, you know, with the Stephen Stills crowd and uh, the Poco crowd and, uh, you know, Ryan O'Neill and Farrah Fawcett and Dan Haggerty, Grizzly Album. Adams used to always come over to his place. We used to hang out all the time. And it was, it was like an everyday thing. And all these movie stars and everywhere cool. we played, everybody, we were selling out everywhere in LA. And I mean, it was just really fun. It was really, really fun. We had some great, that's some great bands, man. We rocked yeah. the house. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I have fond memories of that. Right on. Great stuff, Mark. And thank you for sharing your history with us. Before I let you go, and we are running out of time, just a quick update on the Vanilla Fudge, because I know you guys are doing gigs and there's stuff going on. You did something really cool recently, which was release a cover by the Supremes. Of course, you guys, the thing that really brought you to the forefront and Ed Sullivan and all that stuff back in the day was your cover of You Keep Me Hanging On, which to this day in, in movies like uh, what was Quentin Tarantino's last movie? Uh, Once, Once Upon, Upon a, a Time, Time in, Hollywood. in Hollywood. You know that. Wow. That scene. Yeah, thank that you they, for that wonderful uh, sync license fee, too. That helps. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that that is uh, that is an intense scene in that movie. But anyways, you guys you guys covered before Tim left us, the, the late Tim Bogart, you were able to uh, do another Supremes cover, right? Yeah. Yeah. Talk Stop about that, please. Stop, Stop in the name of love. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because the, the, uh, the label, uh, Golden Robot out of Australia, you know, wanted us to do, uh, another Supreme song because we were known for, you know, having success with Motown songs. And, uh, so anyway, I, uh, I was thinking about it and I came up with this, uh, this template for an arrangement for the tune. And, uh, I presented, I presented it to the band while we were on tour in November of 19, before the, before the pandemic, you know, right. four months before. So we were at TKL Studios, you know, my buddy's studio, Tom Merlin in Hohokus, New Jersey. And uh, we laid down some stuff and we, we never finished it. Uh, so before we got a chance to get moving on it again, a few months later, we got hit with the pandemic. So everything was, you know, put on hold for probably two years, you know? 
terrible time for musicians and yeah. uh, most people in the service industry. So let's uh, fast forward. You know, Carmine uh, had put together a, a drum studio in his house in Florida and there was a lot of leakage on the tracks, uh, so to speak. So, so he had put a whole new drum track on it at his place and sent the tracks over to uh, Pat, uh, Pat Reagan. It was a really cool producer and you know rock rock mixer out in LA. And while he was uh, out there with Pat Carmine, he uh, he managed to get Tim, who was very very ill. He 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 managed to well Tim managed to get enough spunk together to to uh, you know to put a track on there. Jorgen uh, Jorgen, the bass player with Government Mule, had a, some kind of a studio set up, so he helped him get to the to his place. And uh, he overdubbed uh, a really cool bass track that was probably the last of the energy he had. Man. Wow. So Stop in the Name of Love has all four original members on it. Uh, and it was probably released a couple of months ago. And actually, it's pretty cool, you know. It wasn't exactly 100% uh, how, how I wanted it to come out. But you know what? It, it's, pre it's pretty damn good. It's pretty Yeah, I, I think so. it sounds great, man. I, yeah, I, I appreciate it. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and we're playing it live in the, in the new show now too, actually. So it's getting a really cool response. But uh, yeah, so that's how that came about. And uh, rest in peace, my brother Timmy, Bogart, yeah. you know, he passed in January. And of course, and, uh, Vanilla Fudge continues on. You guys are playing shows. It's you. It's Carmine. It's uh, Vince, Benny, right? And who who, who else? Who, who's the other? Who's uh, in Tim's place now? Uh, Pete Bremmy. Is a bass player. Actually, he's been with the band 10, 11 years now because Tim actually retired about 11 years ago from retiring, right. from touring. Yeah. So uh, Pete Bremmy does a great job, plays all Tim's lines and uh, kind of add a little bit of himself on there and uh, got some good energy on stage. He sings all the high harmonies. And uh, we're rocking, man, you know, for a bunch of young buzzards. <laughs> you <know? laughs> right on. Right on. Mark, we're going to have to end it there. I do appreciate your time. I appreciate the new music and I appreciate all the great old stories from the, from the classic days back. Uh, Alice Cooper, Dave, Dave Mason and Tommy Bowling. Great stuff. I mean, we could go on and on. I, I well, love to hear the, the Zeppelin well, well, stories at some point, having Zeppelin open up for Vanilla Fudge. But we are out of time for today. Okay. But there is a book out. Tell us about that real quick before we go. Yeah, it's called You Keep Me Hanging On, The Raging Story of Rock Music's Golden Age. And it's probably over five decades of uh, you know, how rock evolved from the early days up to, you know, probably the 2000s. And right uh, it's written in the third person. It's a, it's a biography. It's like a you are there behind the scenes, uh, behind the scenes stories about, you know, how we toured with Hendrix, uh, how Vanilla Fudge, uh, what our place was and progressive rock, what relevance it was, and uh, the dawn of Led Zeppelin when they actually opened for us when they first came out. Yeah. How I saw that evolve. And, you know, it just goes on and on because we were at the center of the pop music universe back in the late 60s. And uh, I think critically acclaimed is uh, interviews from Robbie Krieger, from Billy Joel, from uh, Sid Bernstein, who brought the Beatles to America. Lots of interviews, Glenn Hughes, all kinds of stuff. Uh, you know, Paul Schaefer. So it's really cool. And uh, hope you pick up a copy, you know, mark-stein.com. You get a signed numbered copy, or if you want to go to Amazon, you can always get it there. 
Well, come to our shows because we're selling it at the shows. <laughs> you got it, man. Thank you for your time, Mark. We appreciate it. And thank you for the new music. We're going to uh, have that linked in the show notes on today's episode, guys. If it is after November 26th, when you're hearing this, the music is out. Go, go stream it, go buy it and check it out. Thank you, Mark. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, dude. All right, guys, that does it for today. I know I didn't read the list of all the, the patrons. I usually do that. I'm tired. <laughs> and yeah, doesn't mean I don't love you guys. Love the people who support me on Patreon. I encourage everyone to do it. And again, my website is markstriegel.net. Follow me on Twitter at Talking Metal. Follow me on Instagram at Talking Metal. And uh, yeah, some stuff going on behind the scenes, which I uh, will hopefully reveal to you guys soon. Um, kind of interesting. I don't know how it's going to turn out yet, but I got a good feeling about it. So we'll leave it at that. All right, guys, have a great week. Talk to you soon.